resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. We were talking this morning, Brian and I, about time. And uh, everyone knows me. I can kind of go down some paths. And uh, I don't uh, quite remember there is time. Like I tell people, I'm just kind of living in light of eternity. So they don't use that as an excuse. Um, So 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, eat for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. Don't know if that was a spiritual thing or what there at the end. So, the Corinthians were coming together, and their purpose of coming together might have been honorable at first. The idea of we're coming and we're remembering why we are a body. It is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ himself 
that creates this community. And so when we come to honor what Christ has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, it would be understandable that we would share that over the fellowship of a meal. Didn't turn out that way. Because in this potluck, those who had kept it at their table. And there were, like in any congregation, there are some who are at one end of the wealth scale, others who are at the other. Those who have and those who didn't. The sad part was, Instead of sharing so that all had in common, those who had hoarded for themselves and those who didn't hungered. So sad. Because here's the Son of God who had the riches of heaven determined for the sake of us who had nothing and became just like us. So that we would be reconciled and inheritors of eternal life and all that goes with it. But Paul confronts him on that. Now, you may say, what, that, what does that really have to do with me? I think it has a lot to do with us. Uh, no, not that we have a meal whenever we observe communion. But I, but I wonder about that phrase near the end of this passage where he talks about the whole idea of do we honor the Lord's death in a worthy manner? Now, don't get me wrong. I don't necessarily believe that by blessing this, that it literally transforms into the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And likewise, that this literally does not become his flesh. However, are we truly missing a genuine experience with God and the Son of God and the Holy Spirit when it's nothing more than just a religious observance that we do? That we just tag on each month. Do we lose a genuine connection with God simply because we go through the motions? Do we lose something that could be really enhancing to your walk with God because we keep this in the past and not the present? Consider with me. That everything about God is celebrated, is experienced, and is appropriated through the elements of communion. For instance, the very fact of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ... Is the greatest proof 
and let me explain something, should be the only proof for the existence of God. Oh, sure, I can give to you all of the philosophical proofs for the existence of God. And all of those proofs we can discuss, we can even debate. But the person and the work of Jesus Christ is the settling point, isn't it? He lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, from whence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. Because of the reality of Jesus Christ, we know God exists. Look at what it says in Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his powers. And after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I know there's a God because there was a Jesus Christ. That settles it. And every time I come into a worship service, but more so when I come, this is a reminder. The Son of God incarnate, becoming a baby, growing to be a man, and then dying for you and me. After he had made purifications for sin, completed his work here on earth, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. It is finished. Because Jesus exists, God exists. Secondly, as we understand and we look here in communion, we see the fullness of the being of God, who he is. I understand completely everything about this God who exists because of what this shows me. Beginning with this, the blood, the juice, the wine that we drink reminds me God is holy. He is a holy God. Habakkuk one thirteen says, God You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. When God looked at the evil of mankind in Genesis 6, it says he looked and their hearts were intent on evil all the time. And it grieved him that he had created us. God cannot bear to look on evil. He is pure. He is holy. We cannot enter into his presence. It was Isaiah who said, coming into the presence of a God where the angels were singing, holy, holy, holy. He says, I come into your presence as a man with unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. And this holy God demonstrates his holiness 
in his character. He is righteous. Psalm 119, 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. God doesn't do anything contrary to his own righteousness. Everything God does is the right thing. Everything. God cannot do wrong. He is righteous in all of his decisions. He is righteous in all of his behavior. God does right. And because he is a righteous God, his decisions are just. Psalm 9, verses 7 to 8 says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. And he judges the peoples with uprighteousness. Here's something we're going to discover here in just a moment about this. About the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's something we're going to discover. Is that God does not treat anyone unjustly. Whatever we receive from God, it is just. Because you see, a holy God who is righteous can only make just decisions. Contrary to his nature. In fact, he is obliged to judge. He does not and cannot let sin go unpunished. And because he's a just God, he executes wrath. In Romans 2.5, Paul says, But because of your hard and impentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Take you to the end of history. When in Roman, I mean Revelation, it talks about that final day, that final moment, when all mankind stands into the presence of God. And it is there that God pronounces judgment. It is there where God executes wrath. John records this and he says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. One of the questions that sometimes I'm asked when I'm sharing my faith with others is the idea of um, how can a loving God send someone to hell? Yeah, I heard that. You've heard that. I've heard that a lot. What's the right answer to that? What's the right answer? The right answer is how can a just God permit anyone in heaven? In fact, what I really tell my counter with this question here, or this comment, do you believe that God would 
send anyone to hell who doesn't deserve to go to hell? You see, that's the point. The point isn't, are we good enough to go to heaven? The point is, have we sinned enough to go to hell? You see, when, when, I, when, I, when I look at this, oh, when I look at this, this represents the wrath of God. This represents the totality of our destiny without Christ. This is my future. This is my eternity, if not for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I'm lost. I'm both helpless and hopeless. I'm a sinner who has rejected God and now stands awaiting the execution of my sentence. In a brief phrase, I'm a dead man walking. However, while God is obligated by his holiness to judge and execute wrath on sinful humans as well as angelic fallen beings, for us, there's the other side. God is love. And it is in the incarnation we see the totality of the affection and compassion that God has for you and for me. In in 1 John, John writes, So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Why? Because God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. He is love. Just as much as he is holy on one side, he is equally loving on the other. And because he is a loving God, he is good. Oh, he is good. Psalm 107 Verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Because he is by nature love, his character is good. He can't cease to be good. Yeah. He is good, and because he is good, he does kind things. Isaiah 63, 7 says, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord and the deeds which he is pleased to be praised. According to all the Lord has done for us, yes, the many good things he has done for Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He is good. And here's the thing. He's not only kind to us, 
He's kind to all. Jesus says it is God who causes the sun to rise on the just and unjust. The rains to fall on the just and unjust. Why look at the birds of the air and worry about you or the flowers of the field? Does God care about the birds who are here one day and gone the next? Or the flowers in the field that are beautiful one day and burnt up in the sun the next? Oh, how much more does he care for you? And it's not just us, his followers. That's true of all humanity. He is kind. And because he is a kind God, he extends grace. Titus 3, 5 to 7 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, being justified by grace. Why don't you consider the greatness of the love of God? First thing, I want you to take note of the love of God versus the holiness of God. The holiness of God should always be understood as being obliged. People say, why can't God just forgive? To forgive is to deny his holiness. He's obliged to be holy. And since he's obliged to be holy, wrath is only the natural outpouring of that. Obligated. But love is a choice. Do you know when this choice for your salvation took place? Of course, it was accomplished on the cross, affirmed by the resurrection. But it was designed before the creation of the world. You, me, unlike the angelic angels who fell from grace because of their sin and pride, who have not this, God chose through Jesus Christ to save your soul. Through one act of grace, I like this. Wrath is satisfied, enabling God to extend mercy to all who receive this gift through faith. Through one act of grace, wrath is satisfied. Oh, it's more than just simply, God, I'm sorry. It's more than looking at one side of God saying, because you love us, you must forgive us. No, no, no. Only until his wrath is satisfied can forgiveness ever be extended. 
That's the condition that must be made. We are forever condemned. One who was worthy had to die in our place. And thanks be to God, it was Jesus who did. Let me read for you. I'm skipping ahead a little bit ahead here to Ephesians 2, 1 to 7, because I think this sums it up the best. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ. That we come once a month to recognize he and he alone is the reason we have eternal life. But this also shows me something greater. It shows me God's purpose. Here's something I want you to understand before I even get into this. Because some people seem to think this. That when sin happened in the garden in Genesis 3, that God had to come up with a new plan. No, 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 no. The purpose of God for our salvation... was already designed before the first sin. And it was more than just simply God anticipated. God, in his sovereign divine wisdom, permitted it for a greater purpose. What is that purpose? Romans three twenty three to 26, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, as one who would satisfy wrath, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, his holiness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over our former sin, and it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Now here it is. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Let's put the two together. Let's put the two together. He is just. And in his justice... He executed his wrath on the beloved Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's the one who justifies. The Son of God who becomes the Son of Man for the very purpose to satisfy the wrath of God. 
And so God, the totality of who he is, is seen very clearly in the cup, in the bread. That which brings God the greatest glory, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in that one event, he is a God who is just and one who now justifies those who receive it by faith. But also, don't forget this. That this is more than just simply settling the penalty for sin. That God had an an overarching purpose in this. Jesus met the condition that had to be made. But there is more, much more. Paul says this in Romans 5 when he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? If while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now are we, here it is, reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Reconciliation. Oh, the death of Christ is much more than just simply paying a penalty so that we can just go on and live our lives the way we want. No! The whole purpose of the death of Jesus Christ was that we would be reunited with God. Let me explain it to you this way. We're the prodigal sons in the pig pen. It's time to go home. To a father who loves us. To a father who we are the apple of his eye. To the Father who wants us to know him, to love him, to experience what it means to be a child of the living God. That's the purpose of Jesus' death. So we can go home. And every time we take communion, it's a reminder not only of who we are, but it's a reminder of who our Father is. And what awaits us in eternity as we turn our hearts and we move the direction of going home. There's one more. The presence of God. I know we get kind of flipped out a little bit on that, but but it's true. Not that this becomes literally Jesus. But it's true that whenever I come, or should be true, that whenever I come and I take this, it's a constant reminder, more than a reminder, it thrusts me into the presence of Jesus Christ. He's not simply the Son of God out there. He is with us. And this is a reminder every month that He is with us. My question is, do we understand and do we 
appropriate his presence in our lives. To the disciples, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Have you stopped and considered what Jesus is doing? In John 14, Jesus says, I go and I prepare a place for you that you might be with me. But in preparing that place, he does something far greater. He prepares us for the place. Hebrews says, he is able to save to the othermost those who draw near to, to him, to God through him. He always lives to make intercession for them. Have we stopped to consider that? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ prays specifically for your salvation in terms of it being completed every day, every moment. He looks to the Father and He intercedes for your sake. The good days and the bad days. The days when we walk with Him and the days when we walk from Him. He prays for you. He prays for me. There's nothing that I can think that would demonstrate the greatness of his love. Then Jesus placing his, his focus, his desire to pray for me. So then. We need to remind ourselves that communion is just as much about the present as it is the past. This is a sacred thing. It's not just simply something we tag every month to make sure that we've done it. Oh, I've remembered you this year or this month, Jesus. No, this is more than just a memorial. This is an encounter, or at least it should be. With the Savior who is with us now. This is the opportunity to come into his presence. And deal with so many things that are taking place in my life. You you see. Communion is important in the presence. Because guess what? We still sin. And need his forgiveness. And when I come I can. Examine my heart. Look at who I am. Confess my sin. And have fellowship restored. We also suffer, don't we? And we need his strength. By his stripes we are healed, people. I come to him knowing that I need him to get me through the day. I need him to get me through my life. We just celebrated uh, Kim's funeral yesterday. This woman struggled, and if not for the presence of Christ, I can only imagine how much worse that struggle would have been. We need his strength. Oh, we have real needs. And we need his provision. We need love. 
and he really loves us. And the last one, we have concerns about someone. And guess what? He's concerned about them too. You see, this is what I'm talking about. Making communion more than just a religious observance, but making it a relational reality. I am literally coming into the presence of Jesus Christ. And he is there to love me, to support me, to strengthen me, to provide for me. So as we prepare ourselves to come into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, I've asked the worship team. That's the cue. To bring us into this experience, and it is an experience, to take this time as we sing together, but also to take it as an opportunity to look inside and to say to yourself, I need you, Jesus, for whatever reason. I need you, Jesus. Amen.
if they would come forward and uh, to pass out the elements that we may celebrate and that we may come into the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.
Romans 5 says to us. How many would know a good man who would give his life for another who is good? But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love. The incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Son of God who becomes the Son of Man, so that God's love towards you might be fulfilled. Take and eat in remembrance of him. John writes in 1 John 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only thing that could satisfy the justice of God. Take and drink in remembrance of him.